Hiya, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. And it's all COVID again this week and will be for a few weeks more, I'm sure. So first of all, we start off with links I liked. And I've got a bit of a problem, which is the sheer volume of analysis and thought and on, on COVID is becoming overwhelming and it's only going to grow. So I was looking at links on impact, links on how governments are responding, what's going right, what's going wrong, links on advice to governments on how to do things better, advice to aid donors, the first signs of research. You know, I'm, I'm doing some thinking on possible research programs around COVID as well. So there's lots of subdivisions, but there are no aggregator sites. There's no one doing a roundup of roundups. And, and there is a real question about collating and synthesizing and making sense of this avalanche of, uh, of information, which I hope that some of the research funders can, can get serious about. Anyway, I'm doing it in a very small way, just kind of putting out links to stuff that looks interesting. And I did a bit more of that later in the week. We'll get to that in a second. The second uh, piece of the week was by Albert Van Ziel of the International Budget Partnership. Really interesting uh, global organization. Um, Albert runs their office in South Africa. And he, they, he, was, he sent me a piece about their experience in the informal settlements in Cape Town. So across South Africa, there's five million people in these um, informal settlements. Um, and they basically make a mockery of the idea of lockdown in that, you know, you've got 300 people sharing three toilets. So how do you have lockdown and self-isolation? So what IBP is doing is they, they, they had to close their office because there was a case of uh, coronavirus in there in the, in the building. And they had to sort of go into isolation. And then they thought, OK, well, how do we do advocacy uh, in this time of lockdown? And what they did was they realised that there were certain things which were going to make the coronavirus response very difficult. One, that the toilets aren't are often not cleaned, that there's a lack of clean water. And so they identified some of the things which were both necessary for the inhabitants to have decent lives, but would also help the, the, the COVID response. They produced a leaflet in four languages uh, you know, about this, and they were just blown away by the level of interest, not including from uh, the actual um, city governments themselves who said this is exactly what we need could you could you print some more could you translate it they ended up tra translating it into 10 different languages and they set up a project called Asivikalane and apologies for my pronunciation Asivikalane in Zulu means let us protect each other and it's now expanded to six cities they've got um, informants in 100 informal um, settlements and what they do is a weekly survey by phone, text, um, SMS and so on. Um, and they ask them three questions about, are you getting clean water? Are the toilets being cleaned? Is waste being picked up? Uh, and then they publish that online. And um, the, they're getting really good responses from local governments uh, fixing the problems as they get identified. So it's, they've become a very important feedback loop for local governments who are trying to sharpen up during the COVID response. Um, and Albert says that, you know, not only that, but their relationships with partner organisations, with people in the settlements, everything's improved. And they're really sort of excited about what they've stumbled upon in terms. And, and I think this is we're going to be seeing a lot more of this. This is kind of emergent activism, emergent agency, people finding ways to work in the current weird situation and actually finding new, getting new ideas and new, new relationships. So I'm very keen on more examples of that kind of thing. 
Then we went to the opposite extreme in terms of hierarchies and I spent the next post talking about the Pope. Pope Francis from Argentina has just written a letter to our brothers and sisters of popular movements and organisations. In it, uh, he made some pretty bold... Um, a, he writes, or whoever writes his speeches, um, writes very well. And he also came out in favour of the universal basic income, which is one of the things that you can see sort of going up the hit parade in terms of people's response to COVID. And a lot of um, people talking about universal basic income, which is everybody in the population, regardless of need, gets a certain minimum amount of money. Um, Alaska has been doing it for years on the basis of its oil revenues, and it's becoming a bit um, uh, more mainstream as an idea now, partly because of the COVID response. And here's the paragraph where the Pope talks about it. Now, we're going to read it out just because I think it's, it's really powerful stuff. I know that you have been excluded from the benefits of globalisation. You do not enjoy the superficial pleasures that anaesthetise so many consciences, yet you always suffer from the harm they produce. The, hill, the, sorry, the ills that afflict everyone hit you twice as hard. Remember, he's writing to the social movements. Many of you live from day to day without any type of legal guarantee to protect you. Street vendors, recyclers, carnies, I have no idea what carnies are, small farmers, construction workers, dressmakers, the different kinds of caregivers, you who are informal, working on your own or in the grassroots economy, you have no steady income to get you through this hard time and the lockdowns are becoming unbearable. This may be the time to consider a universal basic wage which would acknowledge and dignify the noble, essential tasks you carry out. It would ensure and concre concretely achieve the ideal, at once so human and so Christian, of no worker without rights. Pretty good stuff, eh? Um, he went on to talk about universal access to trabajo, techo and tierra, to work, uh, shelter and land or space. Uh, and uh, in a different, um, um, in his Easter speech, he also talked about relaxing international sanctions and forgiving poor country debts. So pretty good weekend's work from the Pope there. The rest of the week, I basically handed over the blog to African authors. So a lot of the coverage that I've been reading, and I, I sort of got this in feedback on the first draft of the paper I wrote on, on Critical Junctures, was very Northern. It was all, you know, not only were people writing about the North, but it was Northerners advising developing country governments and developing country uh, organisations what to do. So I just started scouring and found a few sources of some excellent African scholarship, journalism, activism, and just brought some of that together. Um, <clears throat> and as I say, what we need really is, is somebody to get behind some sense making of all this stuff to make sense of it. But this was a first attempt. So we had one of the first first things I, I focused on was critiques of imported responses. African governments are taking their playbook from France and, and Germany and so on, or, or China, and it may not work. And uh, some of these, uh, some of the authors are saying this doesn't work in in in, in different African countries. So here's a, a Nigerian writer and activist, uh, Olutimehin Adegbaye, uh, on why we need an African solution to a global problem. Social distancing is a valid containment solution for the novel coronavirus, yes, but it is a solution that doesn't grasp a reality that is extremely widespread across Africa. People survive difficulty by coming together as communities of care, 
not pulling apart in a retreat into individualism. And other authors focused on, you know, the, the fact that people are communal in terms of how they access water, sanitation, that people don't have private spaces to, to lock down in. You know, that these, these imported recipes don't work. Uh, and they don't work in many other countries, not just Africa. <clears throat> well, let's just get on to the next bit. There's also a lot of concern about uh, in these writings about Africa's current political leadership and how it's responded. So here's Professor Chidi Ogwamanan, um, who I think teaches in Canada. As the virus births on the continent's 54 countries, there is a dreadful and ominous vacuum of political leadership. Let me just turn off my computer, which is pinging in an annoying way. Um, some political leaders are ensconced in their palatial opulence, scampering for their own personal health now that they can no longer travel overseas for medical tourism. Save for a few countries like South Africa, Rwanda, Kenya, Ghana and Ethiopia, there is little appreciation of the scale of the problem and the danger it portends. Nigerians have yet to hear the voice of their president on the COVID-19 pandemic. Africa is a highly religious and communal society is forced to seek solace outside their resilient traditional cultural and social structures. It is a steep learning curve for a society ravaged by insecurity, unaccountable political leadership and economic stagnation. And then the final bit, I think, on this um, was some, some really stark and shocking reporting from um, uh, the British Med... Uh, the, the the British Medical Journal has a blog on global health and they got some uh, African um, medical practitioners, GPs, academics to write about what was going on in their particular country. And I did find this a revelation. So here's Abdullahi Sow and Bart Creel reporting on Guinea. At the beginning of the COVID-19 epidemic, the Guinean population felt unconcerned because according to the rumours, this was a Chinese, a white men's and finally a rich boss's disease that mainly hit high-ranking individuals such as a minister and the chief official of a republican institution. Panic broke out as a result of more rumours, fake news and the state of emergency that was declared with immediate effect. Restrictions included the closure of all places of worship, a ban on group gatherings, a limit on the number of people allowed on public transport. The closure of mosques and the cancellation of Friday prayers are seen by the population, 85% of whom are Muslim, as a violation of faith. So that was that was like, this is how COVID is hitting Guinea. There's a similarly um, disturbing piece from, the, from Congo, DRC. So some really powerful stuff there. Finally, um, we had uh, that piece I mentioned from Arundhati Roy. And this is still, I think, the most beautifully written piece I've seen on COVID so far. So I'm, I've start, I don't want to just do Africa. I'm looking for contributions from authors uh, all over the world, um, but especially in the uh, lower middle income countries. And Arundhati Roy had a, an essay in the Financial Times, which was just lovely. And uh, I mean, lovely as in appalling, but beautifully written. And here's a quote. As an appalled world watched... India revealed herself in all her shame, her brutal structural social and economic inequality, her callous indifference to suffering. The lockdown works like a chemical experiment that suddenly illuminated hidden things. As shops, restaurants, factories and the construction industry shut down, 
as the wealthy and the middle classes enclosed themselves in gated colonies. Our towns and megacities began to extrude their working-class citizens, their migrant workers, like so much unwanted accrual. Wow. And on that note, have a good weekend, everybody, and we'll be back with yet more COVID stuff because this is the only game in town. This is the only thing that matters right now. Uh, We'll be doing that next week as well. Bye.